Hello, legends, and welcome to today's show. Catching up with Cub, as always, is brought to you by Cub, the Club of United Business, Australia's number one members club connecting our country's top entrepreneurs and business leaders. At Cub, we say we're your business family because that's exactly what we are. And today, I'm catching up with Cub member Andrew McKenna. Andrew is an absolute legend. He's been a member for three years. He's the founder of recruitment company DeNovo, and he's the co-founder and CEO of a buy now, pay later for business company called Select Pay, a company that has truly risen uh, out of the doom of the corona crisis and, and an opportunity that was found. We discussed the business model of recruitment agencies. Uh, we discussed uh, financial planning uh, through COVID. We spoke about leadership and how to maintain culture as your team grows. We spoke about the issues in scaling and the negative effects it can have. We spoke about some incredible things. Honestly, it was actually one of the uh, my favorite conversations I've had. Uh, so I hope you enjoy the show. And we're live. Welcome to the show, Andrew McKenna. How are you, mate? Very good, thank you. I'm very good excited to, to have you here. We were just doing. We, well, we met two weeks ago, um, to to review your membership, and I wanted to hear kind of uh, how you've enjoyed the past three years. It's been three years. Well, hasn't this it? is my third year um, going in, and it's been it's been great. Awesome. And you were telling me about this new company of yours that you've kind of, um, uh, I guess launched during covid which is select pay select pay a crazy time of uh, the world to be launching a new business yeah. um but it's been a year in the planning so it was, it was all designed pre-covid uh but covid coming about has has made it an absolutely essential uh business that we need to launch and we, and we really started it uh, live this year so january and, we... and it's basically it's buy now pay later for business yes it's a buy now pay later solution for for corporates or businesses but we're starting with the recruitment industry first i've been in the industry for over 20 years um and so we're starting with that industry and then we're going to go industry by industry um to offer the solution and also then go internationally so we're starting with australia mm-hmm. uh, starting with recruitment Amazing. And, and yeah, so you were telling me that in the meeting. I was like, shit, let's get you on the podcast and get a bit of awareness of the new business. But uh, of course, we're here because we want to, um, um, we want to share with the world uh, your experiences and lessons and, and knowledge, particularly in the recruitment industry uh, and in life. Um, and um, why, don't we, why don't we dive into a bit of your story? I mean, you're obviously, you're not from Australia. You've got one of those funny accents. Where you're from. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, born and bred in the UK, um, just outside London. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I've been here for, well, I got here in 2000. So 23 years I've been, uh, sorry, 21 years, two, two, 21, isn't it? <laughs> and how old were you when you came? 23. Okay, very young. Yeah, yeah. So uh, came over here to set up a recruitment company. I was working in London uh, in, in the recruitment industry for a few years, worked with an Aussie guy that, that became a very good friend of mine, and uh, we decided to set up our own business. And it was either going to be London, sunny old London, or, or Australia. And I'd never been here before, um, but it sounded fantastic. Additionally to that, the, the economy was very strong here comparatively to the UK. It was $2.8 uh, to the pound. So Really? Uh, yeah, it was, it was amazing exchange rate. So the money we'd saved up in our commissions, uh, we cashed in, came over to Australia, um, and launched um, uh, our first, my first recruitment company, my first business. Um, really, and, and and what about your 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 life in in London? Where, I mean, did you was recruitment always something you wanted to get into, or what? What did your parents do? Well, interesting. Okay, my dad was a management consultant. My mum was a systems analyst, uh, and then a mum. So they came from very different backgrounds. But my dad was is or was he's, he's no, no longer with us. But he uh, was a, an entrepreneur and ran his own companies. Um, my brother and sister both went down the corporate route and both professional lawyers uh, and, and very successful in that in that matter. I decided to go down the uh, slightly wilder route of uh, you know being an entrepreneur. Yeah. Um, so look. It, Know, my life was interesting. I wasn't the most academic uh, of people. I, I, I suffer from dyslexia, like yourself. Yeah. Um, so Does everyone just know that that I suffer from? Well, dyslexia? that's what your introduction question <laughs> yeah. isn't it? When yeah. you do the, the, the my, demo. My, my, my core introduction. Yeah, exactly yeah. Right. Um, so, so you know, I struggled there, and I, I went down the university path because I, it was the thing to do in the UK and thing to do for for, for my family. Uh, but didn't last long. Uh, was there for two years. Uh, had a lot of drinking, a lot of fun, you know, a lot of socialising. Uh, then became a holiday rep. Uh, went over to a Greek island. 
and had even more fun, but actually learned a huge amount of life lessons um, doing that and particularly how to engage with people and enthuse people and to sell. Um, and what do you mean by holiday rip? Uh, so I was promoting nightclubs. And, okay. and bars, you know, getting people into into the nightclubs and, and organizing booze cruises and, and all sorts of things like that. It seems such a long time ago now. Um, but it was it was a lot of fun. Did that for a year um, and then uh, came back to the reality of the world and um, managed to blag my way into a marketing role. Uh, two years of my, my degree was in marketing. And uh, and then fell into recruitment like a lot of people do. And a um, lot of British people do. Well, all British people it seems yeah. in this country, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, uh, it is. In, in Australia, if you meet someone British, you, odds are they're in recruitment. It's, yeah, it's, it's English or Irish is, is typically what we have. And uh, although actually in our recruitment businesses now it was ninety percent uh, people from the UK, and now it's uh, probably a 50-50 split um, between Aussies and and and, and, and what do you think it was that um, made you want to start your own business? Do you think it was the uh, example of your father or do you think it was that you were just a bit of a wild character and uh, you weren't really controllable by anyone you needed to kind of I think probably both of those things yeah. um, look it definitely was my parents were massively influenced in, in, for me and, and my dad was uh, an incredible success story um, from rags to riches and, and did well I mean you know it wasn't hugely wealthy but he did very well for himself from where he came from so he was a great inspiration um, however I had an entrepreneurial spirit um, I set up a car wash business when I was nine I think I was um, I had to employ my cousin to come and help us we dropped flyers down every uh, street um, every house on the road and ended up being very busy the only problem is that um, the the mums and things like that loved having the kids sort of there washing cars so we'd be there for hours doing one car for five pounds or whatever it was <laughs> at the time it was probably less than that um, but yeah it was always like that We I used to make um, jam from damsons in the garden and sell them on the street lemonade and you know it was it was one of those things we we I did as a child and um, my parents, particularly my mum, encouraged us to do that. It was kind of, there was no barriers. You know, you could follow your dream. It was always that sort of scenario. So um, so they had a great influence on me. But, yeah, yeah it was always in my blood, I think, to, to start my own business. I, I didn't see any other uh, path for me. And when you came to Australia, were you um, uh, were, were you planning on, on, I guess, migrating here? That I'm going to stay here? Or was it's it been more a three so, year plan? A, a three year plan every three years for the last 20, 20 odd years, uh, and much to my mum's disappointment. But it was it was always to come here, set up this business, and then and then look at it internationally, and um, and ideally go back to the UK. But look, you you when you come to Australia, um, you fall in love with the place, and um, it's very difficult to find something that compares. Um, so although I miss my family and my friends dearly, uh, it's. You know, the lifestyle here is fantastic. And I've now got three Australian boys. So um, and, and you live right on the front of Bondi, meaning you're living in the most Australian, uh, you know, the most iconic Australian part of Australia. Is. However, it's probably 90% uh, yeah, non-Australian. It's yeah. British recruiters. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, so all my neighbours are doing the same thing. But no, it's the lifestyle is phenomenal. My kids go surfing every day and they swim every day and I run on the beach every day and, you know, watch the sunrise and sunset. So it's, it, you couldn't It would it. be hard to steal that from them and take them back to, to London, I, wouldn't it? I wouldn't be able to. Yeah. Uh, they wouldn't allow me to. Yeah, but, and, and looking at the situation right now, COVID-wise, we could not be in a better place and in touch wood that, that it continues and I'm sure it will. Didn't this crisis show exactly why Australia is the best place in the world to live? You know what? I think we knew it already, but I, I definitely think it supports it. And, and that goes for, you know, uh, the way we're living, even the economy, economy, which I think is probably better off than most other places. I think it's also shown the character, strength of the characters and the people here. Yeah. Um, the sense it, of the com- a sense of community, Australia. Absolutely, yeah. And, and um, you know what could be cool, though? Like, I mean... Everyone knows the story that uh, I'm, I migrated from Australia to Europe, uh, to Paris and, and a bit of London um, for, for a few years of, of my life in, in, when I was a teenager. I reckon that was one of the best, most character – that was probably the most important thing that's ever happened to me in my life. Could be good. It could be interesting for you to think about that with your boys at, at a certain time. Just go there just to have that – kind of life experience without a doubt they've dual, dual passports so without a doubt they'll do that travel the funny thing is Australia uh, English people come to Australia and don't leave mm. Australians go to England and they leave yeah. <laughs> uh, so that's that's the main difference but um, yeah I think my boys will certainly do that travelling and they've got the, the passport to be able to do it so um, you know I look forward to them getting older and doing it and leaving home <laughs> and, and so with the recruitment company that's that's why you came here and you actually built 
uh, quite a large business at first, no? Yes, that's right. It was um, it was actually one of the the well, it was the country's largest sales recruitment agency at the time, um, and we grew that to about eighty five consultants, and it was national across Australia. Um, we the GFC hit at the end of that, and we made a decision to merge it into a group of companies. Um, and which time the structure changed, you know, it was two owner operators running this business, and it was an exciting opportunity. And then all of a sudden, you have a a board and sort of a different sort of structure. So I decided to leave um, the business, uh, and it was no longer branded. The, the name that we set it up as um, and I set up um, so that was in a business partnership with one other guy and then obviously a board after that and then I set up De Novo independently and then since then we set up a, another business called Construct and another and we've got De Novo in Europe as well and, and so what is De Novo that's well, initially, well, originally, uh, De Novo, pre-COVID, was a was a sales and professional services recruitment agency, um, permanent and temp and contract, uh, and Construct does uh, white collar construction. We also have a temporary business and a labour hire business as well within that. Um, but since COVID, you align everything to where the market is. You know, our temp business is growing uh, dramatically. The construction market, particularly civil engineering and, and civil construction, is is booming because the government's putting yes. all their money into that. So we just, you know, being a smaller smaller business. Um, you know, at the peak of our group of companies, 60 consultants internationally or across the the, the, the world. And uh, post-COVID, we're down to 30. Okay. Um, not ju- just due to COVID, but we also rationalized and we, and we made some uh, internal restructures. Um, Do you but- think there was benefits that came out of COVID? amazing benefits um we saw the best and the worst in people i've seen people work you know really really hard in our businesses and and others where they've absolutely you know just shown a a different level of commitment and and work ethic and enthusiasm i've seen some of the worst as well i think some people have used this as an excuse and 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 they've but they've been exposed and and probably were in the wrong industries and have have realized which is a positive i guess i I think from a business perspective yes Mm. uh systems wise our systems are dramatically better um remote working we're able to do it our flexibility our our focus on Health and well-being, over and above um, anything else, is is much more uh, at the forefront of our minds now. Um, so I think there's huge, and I think you know we've shown that we can adapt and we can um, you know be versatile. I think that our cash flow and and our costs have been dramatically reduced, and we're a lot you know leaner as a business, which which post COVID and even you know into this year um, will be in a great position. But I have to say that one of the key things that will allow us to now thrive. Uh, you know, during this period is that we've been very careful on having a solid 24 month cash flow um, and budget in place because the government funding that's about to stop is going to put most businesses in a lot of trouble, particularly recruitment. We lost a third of the industry already due to COVID. Um, we've seen some new businesses pop up, but um, some one man bands, quite a lot of them actually, which is great. Um, but if people aren't planned and they don't have a cash flow or, or a finance solution, then they're, they're going to need one. And so just tell us so this 24 month cash flow thing that you've, that you've, um, uh, implemented how, how can a business can you describe how we could for example implement that and and the positive effect it has on you sure so you know given the situation with covid and the fact that we're going to have to pay back tax uh, debt and have a tax plan and i'm using 24 months because that's a good period of time where you can actually have a recovery of your business right and it, it, and specifically for us that it's essential that we spread it over that that period of time it also coincides with the amount of time that the government's allowing you to put a tax plan in place so you I, I believe you can do a tax plan for 12 months which is interest free and then if you do, if you spread it over 24 months it, there's an interest uh, charge in that but what we've done is we've broken down exactly every cost within our business um, including our tax plan and any other cost there, including miscellaneous costs that you think might occur. And then we've put in uh, our, our projected sales figures and forecasts. Uh, so we know exactly what we have to achieve financially in order to, to uh, pay off our debt. Now, if you don't if, uh, if you don't do the sales figures you, you, know, you, you want to achieve, it doesn't mean it's the end of the world, but your break-even essentially goes up. So you, because you're not now breaking even just on, on your normal operational expenses and your staff costs, et cetera, you've got this extra um, yeah. tax debt that you've got. Um, and if companies don't have this in place, go to your accountant and ask them, what's the update on the government uh, relief plan? Uh, have we got a, a tax plan in place? You know, when does the job keepers end? We're already down to a th- only a thousand dollars a fortnight, and it will, in March it completely stops. Um, have they forecast that or planned that in their in their what they're doing? Um, but I would absolutely encourage anyone to get advice uh, from a from a, an and account. To, basically just to have a twenty four month tax plan. So understand the cost of your business, including the repayment of any any taxes or any additional costs that have come because of COVID. Yeah, I, I fully agree. I, I mean, I don't have a, a twenty four month cash flow. Plan, but one thing I did do in, in uh, during the kind of peak of, of COVID was create uh, what I called a recession plan, which was basically just an action plan, um, uh, a step by step action plan to execute once 
or if sorry not what if revenue was to drop to uh, you know to certain points so like yeah. if it drops 25% what do i have to do if it drops 50% what do i have to do if you know and, and i went down and down all the way to if it was just, just me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did the same. I, I think look, I, we've got a recession, uh, recession-proof plan as well. Um, however, you know this COVID is beyond. I, I, I've worked through a, a tech crash in the UK, the GFC recessions, and everything else. This is a different league, right? Mm. And I think different industries. Some industries are benefiting from it, and that's fantastic. Um, but the recruitment industry, in particular, has t- suffered gr- greatly, and the recruitment always does. Whenever there's an economic downturn, there's two industries that suffer the most: is marketing. And it's recruitment, and so we are always at the, the pointy end, and we're always at the uh, the, the front line, uh, and we see it first, uh, and we'll also see the recovery first, and we are seeing those those uh, you know positive signs already. Um, and why is it that recruitment stuff first, just purely and simply, businesses aren't growing, therefore no one's hiring? Exactly. Well, that's one thing. Um, and additionally to that, in Australia in particular, we're made up of uh, small to medium-sized companies, owner-operated businesses, and they have the opportunity to stop and not hire, batten down the hatches, and pause and wait. And the media plays a huge part. On this if they if the the government come out and say that there's a possible problem on the horizon all of a sudden everyone pauses done yeah and that's what happened to gfc and um we, when we had uh, that business at the time we we overnight uh we lost something like 75 percent of the live vacancies we had at the time just stopped um and then the rest of them actually trickled out after over the next couple of months as the media hype uh, worsened and and you know that's happened again in covid but i think now because it's gone on for such a long time the um consumer confidence has come back because it had to you know we cannot no lo- we can no longer hide and pause and wait so we have to get on with with, with, with life and business i think well i just want to bring up to the listeners we, there is some construction going on <laughs> in the building at the moment. So if you hear some weird noises come through the microphone, it is not us. <laughs> it is some construction, but uh, you might not be able to hear it because uh, I don't think it'll reach the mics. But, but um, to your point, that's definitely something that I learned uh, through COVID that I had never learned was that whenever there is change just in anything, in the market, in the economy or in the media, there's pause. Everyone pauses. And we were noticing it with sales. So, um, you know, if if um, even if it was a positive change, for example, we're coming out of lockdown. Yeah, the, know, it's uncertainty. It's, yeah. Unknown, it's the unknown. Exactly. It's, that, that makes everybody pause. And as I said, because because our economy is made up of these small to medium-sized businesses, which is fantastic when things are good, you know, because there's growth and there's change and it's dynamic. Um, but as soon as there's anything negative or a change. Any un- change. And, yeah, unknown. Mm. Then, of course, naturally people... They and, and I think that while this year is going to still be a hard year, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be a hard year. Right, we're not out. It's not 2021. Everything's free. It's going to be a hard year, but but it's going to be a more stable year. The government knows – well, first of all, everyone knows what COVID is. Mm. So there's not that, like, crazy fear of COVID's going to kill us all. Then the government understands how to manage COVID, control COVID. They've, got the, they, they, they've practiced their procedures, and I think we've, our government's done it better than any other country. Um, so we're going to be more stable in regards to outbreaks and, and being able to lock down specific areas rather than shutting entire state economies. I, I agree. Um, and, and on top of that, uh, which I actually don't believe it was affecting us that much, but even the fact that um, obviously Trump's just flown out of the White House recently, it, that will cause a, probably a fair bit of stability uh, in, in the world media, in the economy. And, and so we, I, I do believe that we are going to have a more stable year. Unless the world goes to war. Yeah, yeah, right. I think think you're right from one perspective. I think from a a healthcare perspective, from a a mindset perspective, from a human perspective, I think you're absolutely right because we can cope with this. But I don't think we've seen the economic impact anywhere near where we're going to. And and I I just go back to the government um, funding, which... You know, there's a lot of lobbying going on where we're trying to get the government to extend the funding. But if, you know, come March, we, all the tax that's been not been paid has to be paid back to the government. And, and you can stretch it out over 24 months as a maximum with an interest charge. So if companies haven't planned to pay this back, they're going to be in serious trouble. And I can tell you that, you know, that the, the, in the recruitment industry, and, and, and I talk about the recruitment industry because that's where I've been for the last 20 odd years, um, Perm recruitment companies have between one and two months of cash flow in their business, right, at any one time. So if their inflow stops, they have between one and two months before they have, they've run out of all their funds, right? And so it's not as if these companies have a huge um, 
you know, war chest of money that they're going to be able to plug into into their businesses. And now what's happened is they've just been lent a load of money by the government. And ours has gone to a, a huge number in a very short period of time. And that has to be put in a tax plan over 24 months. And it's huge, you know. And, and so you, therefore, in the middle of a pandemic or the end of, or hopefully the tail end of a pandemic, but it's still a nervous economy, we're expected to double our sales numbers in order to pay back the tax um, you know, debt that we've accumulated. Mm -hmm. And a lot of businesses will be in the same boat because particularly in recruitment, we... You know, there's very few that didn't qualify for job job keepers. There's very few that didn't have the, the re reduction in, in turnover. So that is going to be the biggest challenge. And this is why Select Pay, when I set it up pre-COVID, or the planning was in place pre-COVID, it was a, you know, Select Pay would start off as an internal solution where we would offer our clients a split payment option. But the problem is, as a recruiter, we're we're wearing that delay and we're wearing that. There's no interest on it and it's, it's very difficult. So I created a system where we could outsource that. And so I found a tech partner, a finance partner, so we could then go to recruiter's clients or ours in particular, and offer that split payment, but there'd be a small interest charge. So, so sorry. Um, so, DeNovo was offering clients split payments to pay their recruit because recruitment bills are not small. Exactly, they're large bills, and so you guys were splitting it, but obviously that was affecting your cash flow. And exactly. so you came up with the idea, or that assisted you in coming up with the idea for Select Pay, which is the same thing. However, you get the cash straight away, and the financier deals with the exactly with the with the repayment. Exactly. So, so the recru in recruitment terms, the recru as soon as the candidate starts, recruitment gets recruiter gets paid one hundred percent of the invoice. Uh, Select Pay then fund that invoice, and the uh, the hiring company will split that payment over uh, a period of time, right? And they'll pay um, monthly installments or uh, you know, whatever it may be. Yeah, um, and it's and it's very low. We've deliberately done it low because we're trying to help the economy. Our mission is one to assist the economic recovery. It's two to reduce unemployment, and it's three to support the recruitment industry. Once we've done the recruitment industry, we're going to the other industries to support that. For example, we think this would work really well for legal, for marketing. You know, there's many other uh, industries. IT would be fantastic as well. Many other industries that can su support this. Why do you think that uh, you mentioned marketing, recruitment get hit first? Why do you think marketing gets hit first? It's a luxury, not a necessity. You know, uh, I mean, uh, there are some ex exceptions to that. Digital marketing, where there's lead generation and, and those things, when it's a Effective is, is an essential tool uh, instead of a sales tool. But most of the time, if it's creative marketing or brand marketing or those type of things, it's it's not it's essential. To, yeah, it, it typically will be the one. If it's not giving an ROI. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. even if it is, it, it's, a, it's a case of how much, right? And it's typically that you know that's more traditional marketing. But you know this this now as a, a an internal solution. They're made to the public, which I thought would be a good luxury to be able to offer your clients, maybe to win new clients on board to help support their their cash flow and to support your cash flow. Since COVID has happened, and when the government funding stops, it is going to be an essential tool. Everybody will be using it. And although we're not the only provider in the marketplace, there's a couple of other competitors, I actually hope there are more competitors. Because the more competitors there are, the bigger the impact we can have, the faster we can uh, turn the economy around, and, and the lower the prices will be to allow this to be a really sort of uh, immediate solution. Actually useful to the economy, to Australia. Uh, it's just, yeah, it's and, and, and if there are lots of com competitors, where are you going to position yourself in the market? Number How are one. you going to position yourself? Right at the front. How? Well, what, is, what does that mean? Uh, well, look, we, we're, we're very big. Well, firstly, it's important for me to have one focus. So what I've learned in all my business career is that when you're looking at different things and you're trying to do a million and one things at, at once, you, you typically do everything averagely. So I, although the temptation is to go into all these different industries right now, and I believe me, there's a huge amount of interest for us to do it. We have to just focus on the one that we know best Recruitment. and be the market leader. So we've been out. We're not only just offering a an invoice financing solution, which is what we do as a core business. We're also setting up a market a network of marketplace partners. So we're looking for twenty. Marketplace partners that are experts in their field that service a particular industry sector, in our case, recruitment to start with. So already the RCSA, who is... What do you mean by marketplace partner? Someone from recruitment? No, someone selling or a service or providing a service to the recruitment industry okay. or whatever industry it is we're targeting. Okay. Uh, the RCSA, who is the industry governing body, the only one in, in Australia, are, we're a preferred partner there. So they've said out of any provider of invoice financing, we are their preferred partner. So we've got that accreditation mm -hmm. already and we've only been going, uh, you know, a, a month, although, as I say, it's been in the planning. So we're looking for those other offerings. But so your position that, you, you, that you're going to be known for first is uh, buy now, pay later for recruitment agencies. Exactly. I think it's a fantastic position. It's the industry that, you know. And one the question I had was why do you think it's a bit of an issue if a company can only sustain its, uh, its uh, costs for a one to two month period? Why do you think recruitment agencies do that? Why is that the case? I, I, at Cub, I don't know why we do this, but um, – oh, no, I do know why. 
<laughs> I heard in an interview with Bill Gates once, he was like, oh, we hold enough cash to sustain a year with no um, – so if we didn't cut any costs, we had no revenue, we have enough cash to sustain a year. Mm. And I heard that and I just – I guess I did that. Yeah. Not, and I, I told my, my old man that he just laughed at me. I actually told another member that the other day and he laughed at me too. He, mm. He's a serious guy. He's a big, big player and they just said that's too safe. But I just thought – I can do it. Why not? Like, well, I think. I think you know. Look, you, you having that much uh, surplus money could be used for other things, right? That's what, and you can borrow money relatively cheaply now. So, you know, but I like the idea of the security. So, for example, I won't go and lease a car. I'd rather own the car. You know, that, that that's something I don't want to be in debt. That, that's just the, the nature of it. So, I get where you're coming from. Um, I think when you expand and you get larger, it will be a different story because there's more opportunities, and, and obviously. While you're expanding any business, and I've learned this the hard way, while you're expanding, you're not making money. You're not making profit. You're, you're, you know, so until you stop and you realize where you want to be or have that goal and the vision, you, and then you know where you are and you can stop. And as soon as you plateau, that's when you start making profit. You know, yeah. Early days and, the, and then the end uh, days is really when you, you make the that's profit. It. That's a really interesting um, process. That means that we're not going to be making profit for the next two or three. <laughs> that, well, that, if you're growing aggressively, and I admire you for it, but, yeah, no, but during are. those growth phases, that's where your profit goes. Yeah, but right. on the flip side to that, it's only a downside, for example, if uh, the cash flow of the business wasn't strong enough that uh, that you would be missing out on opportunities. However, like for Cub, we've got um, – I mean, I've got that like that security blanket, I guess you'd call it. Mm. But by no means are we missing out on any uh, opportunities that we want to obtain because we, we do create uh, – great cash flow and we're in an empty industry so we, we have a strong business model well you're we very fortunate and, uh, and so it, it is that it is that it, it is that sweet spot that being said um, it all depends on how intensive your growth is going to be for example it, it, i mean we, we, we've already claimed we're going to be launching the sydney cbd clubhouse which is going to be off its head it's going to be incredible it's going to be the the first kind of perfect clubhouse we ever made because we know exactly what they yeah. need and should be and straight after we do that we have to renovate the current uh, we're basically building, we're knocking down and building the, the current Pots Point one because we, we own that one. Mm -hmm. Then we've got to go to Melbourne and we're buying a, a, like a building, a clubhouse. We're calling it a super club. So, you know, are we going to have enough cash for that? <laughs> I don't know. But, but, um, but this, well, hopefully by that point, point, select pay will be in other industries. So we'll be able to help you finance those invoices. <laughs> but my point was, yeah, it, it's all, it's all depends on how much you're going to be spending. It's, you know, well, this is, this is, you bring up a very interesting point. So you're in the phase of thriving despite this situation and we need to get other businesses in the same place. So in order for us to do that, businesses need support. They need financial support and they need to have it that's easy, transparent, and it's cheap. And that is exactly what Select Pay doing. I just want to add something with the this, what I just mentioned there about the cash flow situation. That's not for all recruitment companies. That's for permanent recruitment companies only. So where you're doing a one-off placement. So What's the difference? So if you have a temp... Uh, Book. Oh, you keep you, you keep. Yeah, it's like your rent. It's like a rental business. Yeah. You, keep, you keep recycling the person. That's you're, something you're like that. Yeah, <laughs> so I won't go into detail, but yes, <laughs> yeah. okay. it's one way to look at it. Um, but yeah, we're, the, when you've got a temp book, that's continual revenue. You're, you, we're, they're actually, we're actually payrolling them, and uh, that's another finance solution called factoring. Um, so, so yeah, we we would do that. And a temp book is very different because you've always got consistent revenue. And in a time like now. The temp book thriving. is critical. Yeah, it's thriving mm. um, because you know consumer buy, uh, confidence of employment is swaying towards contractors' attempts because there's no long-term commitment and also they don't have to uh, payroll it themselves. So that is a different story and that has more longevity. So if I'm talking to a recruitment business that has 100% perm, and I've done this in the past, it's high risk and you really want to blend that in with some temp contract business um, that, that you're working on. So this is it for exclusively permanent agencies that it's a higher risk and often their cash flow supply surpluses are, are, are for a short period of time. But the business model of a recruitment agency, I would assume, is is quite strong. So I don't understand why that's the case because, um, because I mean, let's say, how is the business made up? Let's say you've got, you said you have currently 30 consultants. Sure. So that's 30 um, basically salespeople in in sense that they, they produce money. So they bring in more than they cost you. In theory. You, yeah, in theory. They, they should be. If they, if they don't, then you should probably get rid of them. Well, that's in theory, they should correct. be. The problem you have is in a COVID-type situation or a global financial crisis, 
though they cannot always achieve their budgets and and when there's no vacancies to fill the permanent vacancies they're doing under budget and what happened with with us um and most other recruiters in a similar position um the government kept us going with job keepers right so the government did us a lot of favors they they we, we uh, basically deferred our tax. We had job keepers and those type of things allowed us to make losses during this time. And, and, and we did, you know, and, and so, but the problem that we have is that tax needs to be paid back. And right? do you think, so do you, do you believe perhaps the government was too friendly to us? And, and in fact, if they were a bit, they let things happen a little bit more naturally that you as a business owner would have been um, uh, more critical as to the decisions you had to make in regards to uh, uh, dropping your costs lower and, and having to, to remove, um, uh, unfortunately, people that, that were not um, that, that were not producing the most, you know, and therefore keeping the strongest. I can say that if the government had not have done what they did, we and many other recruiters would still not would not be here anymore. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, so they had to do it. That, that, absolutely. Yeah. But, however, there are some industries where it perhaps didn't require as much support. and But I don't really know how the government would have assessed that as quickly as they needed to because this happened very quickly, right? Although COVID had been going on actually before uh, the beginning of last year, uh, in Australia it hadn't it impacted us until until probably, what, February, March. Um, but, yeah, there's some industries that perhaps couldn't could have done without uh, as much support. Perhaps they could have tiered it, but I don't know. Your government did as best they could. But I can tell you that the, the level of support that we got was essential keep us going okay. it allowed us to cope with the, the drop in the, the turnover that we 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 um we suffered um but the only thing is now we've got a plan for how we're going to pay our tax back but i hope other other businesses do and if they don't the idea about the whole idea about the marketplace partners is that i want to be able to go to a recruitment company and say look we can help you with this financial solution for your clients but i also have an amazing tax advisor here that can help you with this i also have a factoring provider here that can help you with this i also know the association is our, our provider you should be dealing and, with them and, right and, now. and you can pay them ne- you can buy now and pay later with them too because we're a partner of them is that what you mean that, not yet but they will that no, certainly that's will be kind the, of the concept yeah yeah i mean the idea is actually this one's uh, maybe I'll get um, sort of slammed with this one as well because I, this is not a revenue generating activity for me. This is about us being able to provide small to medium sized businesses that aren't as experienced necessarily as, as, as myself or others that don't have the network and partners already, but we can offer them that support free of charge and, and make those introductions of legitimately fantastic partners. And we already have a number of them, you know. And just back to my point in regards to the model of the recruitment agency, and, and so you've got 30 people, let's say, let's say it's pre COVID. How many people? There were sixty at the peak. Consultants. At the peak across the group, yeah. Right, sixty. How, was it sixty staff or was it sixty salespeople? We had sixty consultants being salespeople. You want to call yes. that? I think some consultants might find that a, a bit. I don't know. <laughs> I, 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 I reckon they're salespeople, but there's certainly a sales element. I think yeah. the recruitment is is one third uh, sales, business development, one third project management, one third candidate delivery, and and often businesses will split those roles up okay. uh, depending on the skill set of people. Because it's very hard to find someone that's great in that's new business yeah. that can do the project management business because it's consult with the business and can find all these candidates. So you know, there is definitely a sales component. C- to it. Call them assets. Okay, so they're, they're making you money. Yeah. So you got 60 assets. How many, uh, if you want to call them liabilities, but uh, how many staff are there that support the ones that are selling? So how many staff are there that are oh, not I selling? Oh, see, admin, head office type yeah. stuff. Well, look, we uh, at one point, probably when we had, you know, the 60-odd consultants, we had a team of 10 uh, people. Where we had okay, that's, and, but that's quite a strong business. So most of your, your, your expense is is in not in COVID is producing you income. Yes. And you've only got 10 people who are allowing them to do what they do. Yes. So they're paying for them. So really you should have good cash flows. Oh no. And, and it can be a very, very lucrative industry. I mean, I've, I've certainly enjoyed um, those, those times. This is not one of those times, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> no, but, but my point to the thing I, was businesses yeah. could have, or maybe should have had more cash in the, in the bank than two months. Yes. Quite right. Uh, and maybe that, that's you know, a great lesson. There's a great lesson, but the, let's you know the recruitment industry has min, uh, sort of some not as, as many barriers to, to entry, right? So so you often you'll get a good consultant that decides to set up a business. Doesn't mean they've got a great business experience. Doesn't mean necessarily they've got great management experience. They were just a great consultant, and then they've grown a business, and then they've got to a small, even. P- pushing to medium-sized company in recruitment terms and they, and you know they've not necessarily got all of that experience the other thing is that you know to get a consultant up and running and being profitable can take no usually no no less than three months but often six months before even you find out whether they couldn't do it or not mm-hmm. so you've got an investment there 
maybe fifty thousand um, dollars. You know, until they start actually producing, right? And then there's still a risk. Are they what you thought they were going to be? Have you given them enough resources? Have you trained them? Have you got you know? And if they're it, that good, they're probably going to leave and do their own thing because it's a very low barrier to entrance to start. Exactly. So, so there, look, it's there's, it's not. Uh, look, I started off thinking exactly what you did, and I've had great success in that in a small term. But yeah. then, when you scale, also, it gets a lot more difficult to to maintain it. You can, you know, I've had a situation when I started De Novo, where, you know, we had a team of less than ten, and we were making more, we were turning over more money on a monthly, quarterly basis than than when we had a team of thirty. Okay. You know? um, so it it all depends, and it depends on the people. And tell us about then your experience. I'd be really curious to to hear that your experience in uh, scaling. And how that was affecting your profit and, and, and what were the trends you saw as to where you were making profit? And when you're scaling, you're not making profit. Yeah. Because so your money is going towards it, growth. It, and, and it's high risk. But also, it's very difficult to um, to maintain a, a, a sort of environment and a culture and a and one sort of core vision and, and, and mission. It, it, once you get to a certain size, you're not, as the, the manager, director, CEO, business owner, whatever it is, you don't necessarily determine the environment. The environment almost starts to determine you and you get these little pockets of cultures, right? Um, so, so that can be an, 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 can be an impact. Um, what how I, did you, yeah, sorry. What I did, what I did rightly or wrongly to, to try and combat that was I set up multiple businesses. So rather than have one sort of larger company, I had multiple companies that had their own brand, own specialization, and where I could give the, the uh, person running that business an equity stake or a profit share within those, those organizations. And in some cases it worked well, in some cases it didn't. So it's, it's, it's hard to tell, but um, yeah, I think, uh, I think the most important thing if you're scaling is to have a plan and a vision and a goal and, and to, to have that focus and plan because a lot of the time you're just scaling for the sake of it. And, and what is the outcome? What are you trying to do? Is it to have a certain profit um, you know, outcome? Is it, is it to have a certain uh, environmental outcome or is it to better people's lives? What, what is it? Because if you don't have that vision, you're just going to keep going. Yeah, well, what is the reason for scaling? I can relate to that because when we scaled <laughs> the first time to Melbourne, our reason was, oh, I want a place in Melbourne. It wasn't. Well, that's the motivation. Was, Why not? Yeah, you know? but it wasn't. It's not a good enough reason. I also want a place now in in Adelaide and Perth, but I'm not doing it well, yet. Well, you know what? If if that's uh, why not? I mean, you. you no, I think it should be okay. What's the reason? Okay, we want to produce another great profitable business out of Melbourne, so go. we want to double our profits. But okay, are we capable of doing that yet? Is the next question because. How, what does Sydney look like? We're using covers as an example. What does Sydney look like? Is it profitable? Yeah, okay, it's profitable. But is the business a real business yet at that point? Mm. Do, do we understand it? Do we have our operations perfect? Do we, do we have our key KPIs and, measurement, uh, and measures in place to ensure that we know if this company is healthy? Do we have a team of which, if I left, would sustain? Do we have an extra team that I can send to Melbourne? To, so th there's the, the, the question then goes... What's the reason for scaling? I think is the question. Well, the second question is, are we ready to scale? Yeah, and what does it look like once you have? Yeah, you know, and is that is that worth it? Because, you know, what, the other thing about scaling is is um, the work life balance, and particularly as a, an individual leader, uh, uh, you know, where the, you don't have a group of people around you to support you, and particularly in the, in the early days, I do now, fortunately, but um, it's it has a huge impact. You know, I, we talked about. You know, I wake up at four o'clock in the morning most mornings, and I'm I'm up late as well. I'm managing three kids and and all the other. What is your morning routine, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah, well, I wake up at four o'clock. It depends if I'm uh, I've got my kids with me or not. And so if I if I have, I wake up four o'clock and I start working. Um, I'll usually then uh, go and meditate uh, if the kids are there. So I'll meditate in, in the in the house and I'll get their breakfast and I'll get the you know we'll go down the beach, we'll have a walk, and then we'll take them to school. Um, if not, I'll be uh, waking up at four o'clock. I'll wait until the sun rises or just before it rises. I'll go down to Bondi Beach and I'll have a run on the beach uh, and then meditate in front of the ocean, um, which kind of clears my head and, and gets me started for the day. So the only things that get in the way of that are, um, you know, the Christmas time drinks and, and all those type of things where everything goes out the window. But that's typically, you know, when I'm on my peak, when I'm on my form and when I'm, I'm operating at my best is, is when I've got that kind of uh, routine going on. But, you know, for some reason I can't sleep more than six hours. I, I, you know, I go to sleep late as 10 o'clock and I'll be up at four. Um, if I go to bed earlier or sleep earlier, then I'll be up earlier. Um, for some reason I can't do more than six hours, which I know is not particularly healthy. But Yeah, but you're a very, very wide switched on person, even when you speak. Like 
bang, 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 bang. Your brain rip fires rapidly. You, you're a fast person. I think that's probably why you I can't You're making me sound slow. Okay. <laughs> I don't think, I, the funny thing is that you're probably right with, in the, some respects in the fact that as soon as I wake up, my mind starts going, I email myself, yeah. uh, you know, over a hundred times a day. I do that. Do I, yeah, and at night time, if I think of something Absolutely. in bed, bang, email myself I'll, in the morning. Or yeah, so that's a tip for, for everyone because I used to write notes and now email myself something, but you, just to get it out of your mind so you can actually sort of switch off and, or go to sleep until you wake up again and have another thousand ideas. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's... To, to the topic we were at before in, in regards to scaling and and not being... Because kind of, I guess what happens is that once the company's growing, you're not having a direct presence to all the team. So they're, they're not kind of... Um, obtain, they're, they're not getting the culture directly from you, from the source, mm. and, and therefore little subcultures uh, create. So having some sort of... I guess the way to do it is is the leaders of the of each team or whatever it may be. You want them to have as much as you, of you, of your culture as possible mm. and, and bringing them together in a regular uh, thing. 100%, to, 100% leadership Kind of like team. the Pope has priests. Yeah, 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 <laughs> like, yeah. The leadership team is, is absolutely critical and communication with that team and everything else. What I find though, or I've found, is that I have to hire, what I've, mistakes I made is hiring people that are the same as me, mini-me's, right? Mm -hmm. Because it can cause huge amounts of trouble, right? And and you get, you know, people that are... Why you know, is that? I don't know, because it, you know, it's certain different parts of your character you're identifying these people, and they're not necessarily the best parts of your character. But what you what I think I've learned is to hire people that are better from you and that have skill sets that are different to you, mm -hmm. right, and be who you are. But they have to all have the common a common value, a common goal, and a, a common belief, and, a, and believe in where you're trying to go. But ultimately, you're gonna with a leadership team, you have to give them, empower them, give them trust, and let them be who they are. And that is where the risk comes in. You know, um, are they the right person, or do they want to have their own, uh, you know, uh, culture within a culture? And, mm. and and but if you hire the right people, then then they will. And you know. And the larger the leadership team, the greater the risk because, you know, if it's 20% of three people, it's not that many. But if it's 20% of 10 people, you've got two, you've got two uh, you know, two, I guess, bad leaders yeah, that's going to affect uh, they, 10 uh, other people. It could be 20 staff now that, that huge, become toxic. cause huge damage. But you can't avoid it because it, it, it's all about people. You know, one of the, you know, I've... I try and hire people that are better than me. It's not difficult um, the, to, to get people that are better than me, but um, it's about encouraging them to, to, to be the best they can possibly be, make a few mistakes along the way, try and learn by the ones I've done, and I've done plenty of them. Um, but it, that's what business and, is all about. And, but it's not just – see, I don't agree that you hire people better than you. I agree that you hire people better than you at that role, at that task, because yeah. they're not better than you at what you do. Sure. Right. What you do, you are the best at in your business. Right. And and if you weren't, for example, if there was someone as a cub that I believed, and when there is, there will be a day where there is someone that can do what I do better than me, I will give them my job because mm. that's the best person to do it. But you hire people better than you at doing um, that role. And that's why I like complete role ownership, like with um, our head of marketing, Jess. Mm. Uh, me and her uh, battle it out over you know ideas and, and and things like that, and it always ends with with me saying, "Well, let's do it your way because um, that's what you're here to do. This is you're the boss of of this, and and uh, I mean, if I thought I was the best person to do it, I'd be fucking doing it, but I'm not. So you do it because I, that's why you're here, yeah. and and, that, and that's where that kind of ownership comes. They're the best at doing that. Mm. No, I, I totally agree with you. I, I'm always looking to to better the people that are with me and be better than me. I've never been threatened by uh, someone being better than me in, in, in certain areas. I've always had a fair challenge, enjoyed a challenge, and and was happy if someone was better than me. In fact, my yeah. job as a coach, as a leader, whatever it might be, is to get the best out of people and, and to be the best. But you're quite right, in their in their chosen field. And that's the beauty of being a business. And, be and but people want to feel like they're getting better as well part of a job part of being part of enjoying your job is feeling like on a daily basis you're overcoming small adversities you're learning you, you you're being stronger you finish your day and you feel fuck i had a good day i feel like i accomplished something mm. today mm. doesn't matter how big or small i feel like i did something if and, and the only way you can actually do something good and, and finish your day like that is if something bad happened in your day Otherwise, all you think is, oh, yeah, today was pretty easy. Yeah. But if something bad happened and you resolved it, then you feel great. So really you should be giving your team difficult things to do some, not yeah. every day, but mm. but some days. And and when what I find is 
that when a, a challenge, I mean, we, we launched the app yesterday. Yes. I know this is going to have problems. Like we don't, we're not a technology company yet. And we don't have anyone on the team that has done this yet. And um, I know technology is difficult. I know it's worth us pursuing because uh, I believe that we're going to build just an incredibly valuable tool and piece of technology for for our members that's going to just completely revolutionize their entrepreneurial journey and basically allow them to have the whole club ready to support them in their pocket at all times with, with a bunch of different things. But but. I also know that that's going to be a very difficult task. And even yesterday in the launch, um, Alice was was managing the launch and that type of things. And there were tons of oh, – we, we even fucked up the launch. Mm. We had to launch late because yeah. Apple had to change something and some bullshit like that. And, and uh, we were getting through the day and I was uh, working with Alice during the day and I guess managing her expectations as far as what, what was happening. And she, one thing she did exceptionally well was – she stayed calm. She stayed happy while she was overcoming things. And, and, and this morning we did our Thursday culture meeting and I gave my, my, we call it boss of the week to Alice because I watched her overcome adversity. I watched how happy she was at the end of the day because it was hard and she still got the job done, which was we need to launch this thing. And it was hard. She got it done and, and she feels better. She's much stronger now. Now she can the next adversity, she feels even more confident. And I think that's what you're saying is that part of a leader is also helping them grow yep. and, and wanting them to be better at you because otherwise you'd have to do it. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And you can't grow without failures. Um, that's the whole the, the whole part of the journey. 100%. You know, both personally and professionally. 100%. Um, um, one, thing, one thing that I really want to ask, I'd be silly not to ask actually, is just tips on recruitment as well because yeah. – I mean, recruitment is one of the hardest. I mean, if you ask any business owner, normally the hardest the thing that they had most difficulty in doing was finding their, their, their team, their core team, the team that allows them then to, to succeed and scale. Mm. And I guess what are some tips you have in regards to being finding the right people? A couple of things. Uh, first thing, don't be afraid of, of recruitment uh, consultancies or agencies. Don't be afraid of them. You, you don't have to use a recruiter, but use that as part of your selection process and pick the best candidate that can make you money. Right? I, I think that we, we, of course, with the cost, you know, SelectPay is going to help that situation. But uh, you know, the, the return on your investment can be huge. It can also be a you know a, a failure in some cases. But one, don't don't exclude it, and, and I, would, I say have it as part of your process. Most of the multinationals will have a third of their recruitment budget assigned to agencies so you'll you'll you're you're saying like use linkedin use seek or whatever you do use facebook ads or whatever you want but also use a recruiter yes i believe that because your goal is to find the best possible person so the more more mediums you have to to advertise about secondly don't spread yourself too thin in regards to agencies you're best to pick one or maybe two agencies i would suggest one that is a specialist in your space that has proven tried and tested or or you've you know gone through a process with but give them the chance to guarantee a return on their investment the problem that companies have uh, you know uh, uh, businesses have when they're using agencies. They think if they use a number of agencies, they have more uh, more resources out there sourcing candidates. But what you actually have is a number of less less committed consultants that cannot guarantee a return on their investment. So they're not going to give you the best service. They can't afford to give you the but best. How service. does a consultant guarantee return on the investment? Well, they get exclusivity from their clients. So although you, so, if I was recruiting for you, I'd be saying, look, I'm, I don't want total exclusivity where you can't source your own candidates, but I would want to be the only, only recruiter that you use for a period of time. Time, right, and therefore my chance of success are, um, are heightened. Why is that? Because you're more. So basically, you're giving the recruiter more incentive to do it because he'll get paid quicker because he's the only person that can find it. Well, first so they're going to work harder. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It. And if they use a select pay, they get paid immediately, and the, the consultants get paid immediately as well. Yeah. Uh, but just plug select pay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, but yeah, I think you know, give them the t- chance and a time frame uh, agreed where they can commit the full resources to doing the best service, rather than just throwing up an ad or chatting to a few people. They need to do a deep dive, understand your business, you know, market map, understand who the key players might be, reach out via LinkedIn and to actually work through a process. But you're saying, yeah, but so what I'm saying is they're less likely to put that time in if they don't believe they're the only person doing it. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, so we, what we have to do in recruitment is you have to look at the projects, live projects you're working, and you have to grade them. 
you know, I do it simply as A, B, C. So A is my exclusive roles, B is my highly engaged contingency, and C is where they might be using a number of agencies. Mm -hmm. And those C roles will put candidates forward as and when they come to us, mm -hmm. right? or as, as we find okay, them on our very database. Interesting. Then, we, but we'll search. So it's it, it's worth tr doing the exclusivity with a trusted partner. Um, so, but for, for for business owners, people like myself, the tip there is. Okay, you might be thinking that you're going to be seeing more candidates. It's going to be better to use more agencies. But really, you're being put to the bottom of the importance of list in the agency. Yeah. You may as well be at the top of the list. And if that if that agency can't find you someone after X, maybe you set a set a time frame that yeah. they can work in. If they don't find anyone in that time frame, select someone else to to be select exactly. another agency. And you've got nothing, you, you've got nothing to lose there. Um, and I think you you know you give commitment, you get commitment. You and I think four weeks is a, is a normal uh, you know standard amount of time. However, if it's urgent, you might reduce it slightly, but give them a crack and you and assess them as they go. Also, four weeks is a good amount of time. Yeah, that'd, oh, be, that'd be fair and reasonable. Yeah. Um, the other tip would be that um, you should get a candidate in a, in a second or final interview stage to do some sort of presentation, uh, whether it be a sales presentation, a sales plan, or a business plan, depending on the role, or a marketing plan. So they actually have a chance to demonstrate their understanding of your business, their understanding of what the role represents, and their understanding of what they would do in this situation, particularly in the first three to six months. That is the most amazing tool that we use, and um, what you find is you actually remove 50% of your of your candidates just doing this process because they can't, they're not engaged enough to do it. To even do it in the and first place. Guess what, if they can't do it now, what are they going to do when they start yeah. in your company? Um, so they would be the three things that I would... And if they're would... not bothered to do it, then they, you know they're not that excited about joining your company exactly. either. Exactly. Any, anyone who really wants to work at your company specifically is going to is going to go out of their way to do something. Well, exactly. And the, the, I mentioned at the very beginning of this that I, I blagged my way into a marketing role. Well, I did. I went. I, I was actually working for the Chartered Institute Marketing in a, in a temp role. And one of my jobs was to post the the new ads on their, on their website. And I saw this ad come up and I thought, okay, I'd like to apply for that. So lo and behold, it didn't go on the website and I called up the managing director of this company and turned up he, he called me he said come in now and I had an interview with him it went well but I was inexperienced the job I was underqualified for the job right um in fact not qualified the job at all I had two <laughs> years of a three-year degree um but I said to him let me I understand your business give me a tour and I'll do a marketing plan and I'll bring it back to you and present to your board right it wasn't a, it was a small business but he had a, a, a another director the board uh, so anyway they were the made up the board uh, and i went in i did this business plan and, and turned it around within 24 hours and and although it was it was you know probably not greatly professional it wasn't correct it was my opinions and who am i to have an opinion of this but the fact that i did that showed that I, I was committed, dedicated, and would work hard to getting a result. And that's ultimately what they got. They hired, at a, at a very cheap rate, because I was very young, um, someone that was a doer. Hungry. Was, was hungry, was listening, was learning, was, was prepared to commit. And, and I think that's why we've now integrated that into our, into our pro recruitment process, and I would advise any hiring person to do that. I love I, that. You used your self-experience, something that worked for you, to, to implement into your business and the people you're helping find jobs. Exactly. And would you say you work for the company that's searching for the candidate or for the candidate? It's very good. Uh, it's the company. The company pays. Well, it's it's both. I think you have an obligation to to both parties, and it also depends on on the state of the market. So, in some uh, cases, we have an, a lot of uh, of vacancies, a lot of roles, and therefore we're having to. Uh, most of our effort is going to sourcing the candidates. In, in other cases, we're, we've got a, lots of candidates and we have to go and find the roles. So we have two clients, essentially. It is a candidate and the client. But as you say, the client pays the bills. And ultimately, they're the ones giving us the brief. They're the ones where we're going out and searching. That's when you're working client-focused. In some instances, we find good quality candidates and a great uh, salesperson or, or a fantastic project manager or an estimator or whatever comes up within a unique market. And we will go and work with them to find them an opportunity and a job. Ultimately, though, the because client. you know they're going to get hired quickly because yes. they're great. But because they're great. But that, the value that you can bring to a business is, is phenomenal mm. um, in doing that. And, so, and some industries are like that all the time. You know? And do you, um, do you secure the candidate the same way you secure the business in that you're exclusively looking for the job for them? In an ideal world, absolutely yes. But um, you can't legally prevent them from getting a job. No, not at all. And it's not about that. I think it's about having commitment from, you know, in some cases we get exclusivity agreements signed by the, the client. Um, I think a commitment is, is is just as valuable. You know, you can always get around a, a, a signed agreement anyway. You just wait an extra couple of weeks and you've got someone lined up and hire them. It's 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 about having a real commitment. And and the commitment has to come if the, the client or the candidate or both believe there's a real value in what you're doing. And you have to be, a, you're not a fly-by-night. You're not a, just a salesperson. You understand your industry. You're an expert in your field. You're committed to making a result. You say what you're going to do. You follow up when you say you're going to follow up. And you add value to a process. That's what a real consultant does. And I think if you do that, naturally you get exclusivity.
I like so, that. Adds value to a process. Makes a process more seamless. Makes it better. Yeah. That's otherwise, what's the point there. paying for it? Um, yeah. You know, you can just stumble across a result. And and I I did that when I started in recruitment. I uh, my first recruitment role I had two days of training, and then the, on the third day, which was my first day on the phones, essentially, I was reverse marketing a candidate, and I placed them that day, and and we got a fee for it. So I, it was I think it was a record for not only the company but probably anybody, um, which was phenomenal. And I thought this is easy. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna keep doing this, and actually, I think that sort of um, positivity it gave me made me successful uh, as a consultant because I I believed it was it was that easy, and it and it continued to be most of the time. Um, but yeah, I think uh, I think recruitment though is a lot more than a reverse marketing sales job, uh, and particularly these days, actually, good consultants are digital marketers as well. You know, really having to understand LinkedIn, really having to get out there and, mm. and find the, their audience, you know, capture the audience, get them to communicate, and and, and convert interest. I guess to succeed, you have to be what you're saying. You have to truly bring value to the process, and you have to do your job well because the market. I mean, it is a, a packed market. It, 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 to, to start a recruitment agency is a low. It, there's a low barrier to entrance. Mm -hmm. Therefore, there's a flood in the market, and and um, and um, in order to stand out, you just need to be exceptional. You need to be the best at the best. Yeah. Why don't you think that results in price dropping? Because the industry's prices are quite high, if you'd ask me. But uh, there's a lot of options to go to. So why hasn't the price oh, dropped? There's plenty of companies that are dropping their prices, and yeah. and and the, those companies are not sticking around very long. I mean, the the average recruitment fee would be around fifteen percent. You know, if you go yep. executive, you can go up to twenty five. Although those days are, are gone. You know, if you get commitment from a client, often you'll go down to. 12 plus 12 and a half percent maybe even 10 if you've got a good long-standing client with with this is all permanent by the way mm -hmm. it's got um you know volume business but once you go lower than that it's like the the grading of those roles you automatically if, if you're if it's not commercially viable you stop caring you're, about you're, it. you're going to favor the client that's going to pay you 15 percent than the one that's paying you eight. Yeah, and i think 15 percent is is fair and i think for a client that's giving you more commitment or volume business then it's absolutely right to to lower. Uh, do, do a lower but you know and i i encourage businesses that offer a quality service not to reduce their their fees uh, past that point because it's just going to um, ca cause damage to the industry. Yeah, we've spoken a lot in this podcast about people not or being not negotiating if they believe what their price offering is fair. You know what? You don't yeah. have to negotiate if your if your price is fair. It's, yeah. My one of my philosophies is everybody wins, and everybody in a, in a business relationship or or any relationship for that matter should benefit and win. Uh, and if they don't, then it won't work. Mm. And and that goes with pricing or, or anything else. Love that. And I'm just reading your book recommendations you got for people. Dale Carnegie, How to Make Friends and Influence People. That was my first favorite book and still is my favorite book. I love that. Um, I've never read, though, Jay Shetty, Think Like a Monk. Is this your meditation side it's, coming out? It's, uh, yeah, look, I'm not, I'm not a hippie um, by any stretch of imagination, I, and I'd love to be a lot, a lot more uh, mindful. Um, but I have, over the last year, been focusing on, on health and well-being and mindfulness um, because I think it's a, a really essential part of balance. Um, and, I, and it's given me a lot of benefits. Uh, I'm not uh, probably as far into it as I'd like. And this is a new read. Um, and in fact, I'm only halfway through it, but it's amazing. It's, a, it's an amazing book. That, cool. That, I'll get that because I haven't got that. And Richard Branson, screw it. Let's do it. Yeah. I haven't read that one of his books. What's that about? That's just him setting up his business and how, uh, how, how, he, did how it. he did it. And it was, he's dyslexic as well. And it talks about that. that um, uh, you know, challenge. I think <clears throat> I don't know if you feel the same, but um, being dyslexic was a major challenge for me in all you know in business and and in uh, education. But what it did was it enabled you to be resilient and to find a way around a problem, right? Mm. And to do it quick, right? Mm. So my mind works fast, probably because of that. You mm. know, that's interesting. Um, yeah. So I think actually it's a, it's a, it can be an advantage if if um, every weakness can be an advantage. I agree. I, I believe everything happens for a reason too. And, and uh, also, I like the title, Screw It, Let's Do It, because no one ever fucking does it. That's why we launched this app. We were supposed to launch this thing a year ago, but everyone, oh, this problem, this problem, this problem. I'm like, well, you know what? We're not solving the problems well enough because the members haven't got the app in their hands and you know, we're not forced to just do whatever it takes to fix it. I was like, just fucking launch this thing. Yeah, yeah. Let's just do it. Do it now. And it will make us perfect it. Exactly. And, right. I and agree with that. I, 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 I've always died. I started a couple like that. Um, and what would you say your greatest, like t if you're going to leave the listeners with, I guess, the greatest lesson or a thought or something of the matter, what, what would be a piece of advice that you would, um, actually let's frame it like this. I asked um, Mark Boris uh, this exact question um, when he was on. What was his answer? If, I'll just copy was, that. <laughs> <laughs> He's done, I right? can't remember. <laughs> but but uh, if you were to give your sons yeah. one piece of business advice, and that was the only piece of business advice you were going to give them. 
Oh, that's such a big question. And, and I've got three, three kids, so I'm going to have one answer for each of them. <laughs> no, I won't. Um, you know what? I, I don't know. I think it probably is the right answer for me right now. Um, but it's balance. You know, it's, you, you know, I've been through failed relationships and, and some great financial losses and great financial gains and some suffering and everything else. And I think that it now, only now really is becoming balanced. And so it's all, it's all in moderation. It's all, you know, keep, keep the end goal in mind, but don't suffer or ever let anyone else suffer for, uh, for, you know, um, for what isn't necessary. I think, I think if you're in balance, both from a health perspective, from a mindfulness perspective, from a, from family, a perspective. family perspective, most importantly, uh, from a work perspective, everything becomes more fun. Everything becomes easier. The problem is it often, you only get there once you've been through the school of hard knocks, once you've done all the hard work, that you actually get to have that balance. But you know what? I think it can be reinvested. I think it can be done differently. I think perhaps that I agree that I think perhaps that does happen because after going through the school of hard knocks, only then are you good enough to achieve the same amount with less time and are able to spend more time on other things. Yeah. That's why you see a lot of these super rich guys um, who barely work but somehow are able to – uh, make a, start a new business and somehow make that work within the year and make tons of cash. They've got other people doing it. They're, they're controlling it from – they're just so good at business. They understand business. They probably understand their industry so well that they're, they'll probably be on holiday and they can still start a business. You know, They're just more experienced and perhaps that experience is what allows that balance, but there is sacrifice along the way. Yeah, I agree. I think if you have, but if you have a plan at the beginning of it, and I think, you know – and a clear goal, clear outcome. I think you can you can probably manage it better. It's when you don't have that plan that, that it's it's difficult. You know, I was I was probably similar to you in a lot of ways um, when when growing Denovo and then the group of companies. I was just scale, grow, get more more offices. You know what? So sometimes that spreads you too thin, and I think um, sometimes you therefore don't have a focus, and those you're doing things averagely. Um, but if you don't have a goal, what's the point? You know. And not just that, but, um, you know, if you're scaling too too fast just for yeah, – the question is why are you scaling? What's the reason? Because you may make more profit by not opening uh, that up. Well, there's no doubt, yeah. doubt at all that you'll make more profit if you don't scale while scaling, excuse me. Um, but that your turnover will increase, but who cares? Yeah. If you, well, if you can have fuck you about have, money if I can't keep it. Yeah. <laughs> so you're going to have a huge turnover and no profit or, yeah. let, or make a loss, you know, even. so. I agree. It's about profit. Yeah. That's what it's about. Unless you're one of these new age tech companies that are going for huge valuations, that's a whole other business conversation. Well, well, actually, that is select pay at the end of the day. I know. I mean, <laughs> we, we are a, a financial service, but we're also a fintech company and um, a tech business, and, and that's being developed. But that is, you know, it's all about scalability for that mm -hmm. for this business, you know, with with relatively lower overheads. But it's all about it's just, a different strategy. Oh, totally a different. And it's exciting. Strategy. I mean, like, I've run recruitment companies where it's all been on my own cash flow, all my own money. It's all you know, a smaller scale, no no peers' advice mm -hmm. or anything else working with me now to a, a well-funded startup with a board and an infrastructure and, a, and a, a plan and marketing budget and all these things, you know, and I'm just doing a road tour, you know, yeah. podcast you've, to gone full, yeah. <laughs> you've gone full modern business. That's it. But, um, but that's, we should, we should wrap up there because that we select pay. Let's see, let's see how you come out and dominate and, and we should catch back up here and uh, you can update us and we can have our next, maybe our next conversation can be on uh, the modern technology business model uh, in, in regards to valuation and scaling um, because uh, I'll get my app uh, pumping in, in in the next uh, six months or so and I'll be able to actually uh, talk about it too. So. Good. That'd be <laughs> awesome. exciting, yeah. All right, Legend, thank you thank so you. much. Uh, to the listeners, if you want to um, learn a bit more about Mr. Andrew McKenna, just go to the website. It's cub.club forward slash podcast. You'll have favorite quotes, books. You'll be able to contact him and reach out. Um, you've got uh, websites. You've got everything, and you can also see all the other podcasts. If you haven't been there, go. It's awesome. I hope you enjoyed the show. Thank you.